0: Vaccines are one of public health's greatest accomplishments. So why are so many parents refusing to vaccinate their children? You're listening to ReachMDXM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm P.A. Lisa DeAndre Linnell, your host, and with me today is Christina Robom, physician assistant and associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado, Denver. She is also a practicing pediatrics P.A. at the Children's Hospital in Denver. Today, we are discussing the increase in the reluctance and refusal of childhood vaccinations and how to discuss these issues with concerned parents. Hi, Christina. Welcome to ReachMD.
1: Thank you, Lisa.
0: Christina, tell us what changes you've seen in the way parents feel about vaccinating their children.
1: Well, we've seen some parents that are definitely hesitant because they may lack trust or they may be suspicious that there's profit motives behind vaccines or they might have misinformation. So that's one of the things that challenges us in pediatric medicine is being able to talk to parents and finding out how they feel about vaccinating their children.
0: And what do you believe has led to this change?
1: It's hard to tell. There's definitely been some stories just in the media about People who maybe have seen a coincidence of something that happened to their child after a vaccination was given to their child. Or there's also been books and articles that have come out in magazines that really may be leading people to question if vaccines are okay or not for their children.
0: So how do you approach a parent that may not want to vaccinate their child?
1: Well, I think the first thing is that we need to get onto the same page with that parent so that we understand why they're questioning whether or not they should be giving their child the vaccination. And one thing I always want to make sure the parents know is that I want the best thing for their child also. I've never run into a parent that is refusing a vaccine because of any reason other than that they want the best thing for their child and they want to make sure that we're doing the safest thing possible for their child. So it's nice to be able to clarify that up front and then also to clarify their concerns because we have to find out what is leading them to even questioning the vaccine or why they may not want to have vaccines for their children.
0: So are there any reasons why a child should not be vaccinated?
1: Well, there's certainly contraindications to some vaccines, especially allergies to components, like yeast, eggs, or gelatin, allergies to latex or neomycin. Some children with other types of conditions, such as cellular immunities or HIV infection, may have, reasons that they can't receive certain vaccinations. And those are things that we have to question before we can give a vaccination to a child. There's also some things that we want to hold on vaccines. For instance, if a child has a serious illness or a very high fever with an illness, we may want to wait and give them a vaccine in a week or two when they're feeling better.
0: So how do you handle the parent who wants to wait and vaccinate on a different schedule than what's recommended?
1: Well, that's always difficult. I try to talk to parents a little bit about the logistical problems that can come up when we're doing things on a different schedule. There's human error can increase because now we're vaccinating on not a typical schedule and someone else who may be seeing the child in the clinic may not know what the vaccine schedule that we have chosen to use is. It also can help decrease the immunization rates which is something we don't wanna see. And really, if there's too many kids that are on different schedules, we increase the disease risk and we increase the outbreaks because part of the reason for the vaccination schedule that we have is to protect children the best we can at the ages that they are at risk to have some of these serious vaccine-preventable diseases.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and I'm speaking with Christina Robom, physician assistant and associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado, Denver. We are discussing the increase in the reluctance and refusal of childhood vaccinations and how to discuss these issues with concerned parents. So, Christina, parents are speaking out about vaccines and the effects that they believe these vaccines have had on their children. And maybe medically it can't be explained, but with so many voices, is medicine listening to them and is there some kind of compromise that can be met?
1: Well, we really are listening to parents, and there are systems in place to ensure vaccine safety, that we're monitoring things as well as we can. One of those systems is the vaccine adverse effects reporting system. And that is, one of the examples of that working so well was with the rotavirus vaccine that was given between 1998 and 99. There was an increased risk of intussusception due to that vaccine, and we found that due to the reporting system. And after we found that there was an increased risk of that, that's when the Centers for Disease Control and also the AAP decided, well, maybe we should step back and wait for a safer rotavirus vaccine.
0: So thimerosal. Thimerosal was removed, but yet parents were told it was safe. If it was safe, why was it removed? If it wasn't safe, why wasn't there an admission to that fact?
1: Well, I think we also need to understand what thimerosal is. Thimerosal was a preservative that was used in many of the vaccines that were given in childhood. And thimerosal has a relationship to mercury. So there's methylmercury, and that is actually the kind of mercury that is the neurotoxin, and that we see in even drinking water that we drink on a regular basis. And there's a certain amount of that that was. Has been considered to be a safe intake level by the Environmental Protection Agency. But thimerosal is ethyl mercury, which is a different kind of mercury. And that was used really to make sure that the vaccines were kept fresh to keep the bacteria and the fungi out of the vaccines. It was really 1999 that the FDA determined that after they reviewed this, they added up all of the ethyl mercury that could be given in all the vaccines, if a child received them all in one day, and they found that that level was higher than 0.1 micrograms for the methylmercury limit that they had for children. So in 1999, they didn't know much about ethylmercury. It really hadn't been studied to look if it was toxic or less toxic than the methylmercury. So the authorities decided that since they didn't have the scientific explanation to be able to say if it was safe or not safe, that they would remove it as a precaution. So now that they've studied it more, they found that really it wasn't causing the same problems as the methylmercury, but because it's been removed and the vaccines are safe because they've done different things with the preservatives and the handling of vaccines and putting them in one-dose vials, that we really don't have to have the thimerosal in the vaccines. And the only exception to that is the preservative that's used in the flu vaccines, So other than that flu vaccine, thimerosal has been removed from all of the vaccines that are given to infants in this country now.
0: Parents are also concerned about overloading their child's immune system. How do we know that a child can handle all of the vaccines at one time?
1: Well, one thing that we need to think about with kids and their immune systems is they have very developed immune systems. And at birth, they are immediately thrust into a world that they are faced with a host of different challenges to their immune system, from bacteria that live on the skin to the lining of the nose and the throat and the intestines, and they have to have an immune response immediately to those. They're also immediately exposed to different viruses. And they have a very good immune system that really can catch all of those microorganisms and start developing immunities to those immediately to protect them. And one of the best theories we've seen on this is Some scientists estimated that young infants can respond to about 100,000 different organisms at one time, where if we added up all of the antigens that are presented in the immunizations that are given currently, there's less than 130. So we're not overwhelming the immune system of these children. We're really only using less than 0.01% of their immunity that's available to make sure that they can make the antibodies they need to to the viruses and the bacteria that we are immunizing against.
0: Why don't we check titers prior to vaccination?
1: I think the main reason would be cost. A titer can cost anywhere from $30 to $100 to for each disease that we would be immunizing against. It would increase the number of office visits that children would have to have because they'd have to have a visit for a titer and then a visit to receive the vaccine. And immunity can also wear off. And that's part of the reason for the schedule that we have for the immunizations is that we need to make sure that they have a certain number so that the immunity lasts long enough that they can get back to us to get the the next booster shot for those.
0: So has there been recent outbreaks in vaccine-preventable diseases?
1: The outbreak of measles in the late 80s was due to decreasing immunization rates because One of those things that happens with immunizations is it's its own worst enemy because we think we don't need to immunize anymore because we don't see the disease. But those diseases are still lurking. They're still out there, and they're just waiting for their chance to come back. And what happened with that outbreak in 89 and 90 is that people weren't vaccinating their children as often for measles, and then there was a huge outbreak, and there were deaths from that outbreak. Another example is the 2006 outbreak of mumps. Japan also had an outbreak of pertussis when they chose to stop immunizing against pertussis.
0: So what happens to the unvaccinated children when a vaccine preventable illness occurs in their community?
1: Well, they are at risk for that outbreak. So it is difficult to explain to parents that even though they may not see measles commonly in the community, their child would absolutely be at risk to get measles if they weren't vaccinated against that or any of the other vaccine-preventable illnesses. One example was in Minnesota just a couple of years ago that there were three children that did not receive their immunization for the haemophilus influenza type B. And those three children that came down with invasive disease, one of them died. So those diseases are still out there. And I think that's one thing to stress to parents is that we need to keep the vaccinations going because we need to make sure that there's immunity across the community so that these diseases stay at bay so that we don't have them coming back in outbreaks.
0: Well, there are currently 30 states that have mandatory vaccine laws to receive an education. Do you know how this started? And do you think it's fair?
1: It really started in the middle of the 70s, and that was another time that there was a large measles outbreak, and there were many deaths resulting from the vaccine-preventable diseases during that time. So that's when the states started putting into effect that they had to have the vaccines before they could go to school or to continue in school. And You know, it's difficult to say is this fair or not fair that people may not have a personal choice in some states of whether or not they want to vaccinate their children. But what we can look at is the epidemiology from those states, that the states that have the philosophical exemptions have higher rates of the vaccine-preventable diseases, such as pertussis, measles, mumps, rubella, haemophilus influenza B. And the states that have those mandates have lower rates of those vaccine-preventable diseases.
0: So what's new on the vaccine front?
1: Well, there's a few changes that are coming around. The flu vaccine for influenza, the children from 6 months to 18 years now are recommended to get that vaccine. So we want to start as early as possible, and then we also want to decrease the risk of influenza really going around the community and infecting the people who are at highest risk to have serious sequelae from that disease the HPV vaccine, Gardasil, for the human papillomavirus. And that is recommended to be given between 12 and 14 years of age to girls to help decrease the risk of contracting HPV and the subsequent development of cervical cancer. The meningitis vaccine is also now recommended for children from 11 to 12 years old. Previously, that had just been recommended for people who were at high risk, such as college freshmen, kids that may have been going to boarding schools or long-term camps where they were around a lot of other kids. And now it's recommended at high school entry for all children. And then the other thing with the varicella is we found that the immunity from varicella is not lasting as long as we thought. So there's now two doses of the varicella that are required. And we found that after we were giving the first varicella vaccine at a young age, what was happening with the chickenpox outbreaks is it had just moved that into adolescence and late childhood. We were seeing more chickenpox. And that's when we found that there really needed to be a booster for the varicella vaccine. So now there's two doses recommended.
0: So how should parents evaluate the information they get on the internet and what are reliable sources of information?
1: Well, certainly parents should talk to their health care provider and talk to their health care provider that they trust because sometimes parents don't trust their health care provider and then that is a difficult situation. The other thing is to look at the good evidence that is out there. So the Centers for Disease Control has so much information on vaccines. And there's also other vaccination sites that have good information that is evidence based that can really help parents make the good decisions about whether or not they should be vaccinating their children.
0: Well, thank you, Christina, for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. And thanks for listening.